Well, good morning, Fairhill Church. If kids want to head out, they can do that. They are off. All right. So we're excited about the Lord's provision, and uh, He's faithful. He's faithful, and He's uh, He's good. So uh, thank you all for for your prayers and for uh, your patience and uh, and faithfulness. So uh, this week, this week we are looking at. All right, weird transition. Uh, one of the, the bleakest passages of, of all of Mark. So uh, today we are looking at the conclusion to what was left kind of dangling in uh, Mark chapter 1. What happens to John the Baptist? The last time we saw him in chapter 1, he was arrested, and Jesus kind of carries on his ministry in a way. But now, at kind of an odd place in the story, in the narrative, we're returning to John the Baptist. And just for the context, you remember, this is after Jesus has been rejected by his hometown. This is just after the sending out of the twelve on their first missionary journey uh, to share the gospel. And, of course, there is this kind of foreboding sign that they're given. You know, if, if anyone rejects you, then shake, shake the dust off of your sandals that... Once again, there's this possibility of rejection. And the kind of third instance then is the worst and the climactic that the one who proclaims the gospel uh, is persecuted and ultimately martyred for being faithful to that message. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at uh, some aspects of, of John's martyrdom. And as we look at this, we're going to see... Uh, the call to repentance and how kind of crucial that is and how that opens the door for persecution. We're going to see the relationship between the church and the state and how that is to be navigated and what that looks like. And finally, we're going to see uh, the reason for God ordaining such persecution and, and the martyrs that, uh, that have throughout the history of the church um, brought him glory. Why, why is it there? Why, why are they? Why have they been called to this? And so, uh, with that, let's look at Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. Just after the disciples were sent out. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was, with, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and meritorious commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. 
The king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Let's pray. Father, what, what a, a grievous story that would befall your, the final prophet of old. And Father, we ask that you might uh, help us by your Spirit um, to see the, the glory of your kingdom in such a dark story. Father, we recognize that we are not of this world. This kingdom is not ours. And Father, we ask that your glory would be more precious to us than the kingdoms of the world, than the, the powers and the everything else, Father. And as we say that, we know that, that it is not true yet, and we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts. Father, would you make us uh, captivated with the gospel of Jesus that we would even die to proclaim it? Father, what a, what a call. We ask that you would uh, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So today we find ourselves uh, in the middle of a really weird interlude of the missionary journeys of the, the 12 disciples, and yet we, we kind of jump off script and jump into the heart and mind of King Herod Antipas, the, the son of King Herod the Great, one of the Tetrarchs, one of the kind of regional rulers, especially of Galilee. And now this guy, he is a client king of Rome. A client king. That's a nice way of saying it. he's a puppet king. All right. He's put in power by Rome to keep the peace and to rule on behalf of Rome and we've kind of jumped and said, okay, yes, there's this, all this stuff going on, but what about Herod and what about John? How does the political leader of the day react to John the Baptist? And fundamentally, as everyone's kind of, the rumors are, are swirling, all right, it must be John the Baptist, maybe it's Elijah, it's a prophet, there's miracles happening. Herod hears of the message of Jesus and he thinks, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, why does he think it's John the Baptist raised from the dead? Uh, it's because of the message. A message of repentance. A message of repentance that is kind of running throughout the proclamation of all of, uh, of John, of Jesus, of the disciples. And as I was thinking this and, and seeing, okay, how do people in this time, how are they proclaiming the gospel? 
I didn't expect them to always be saying first, repent. When I hear repent, I think uh, people in sandwich, sandwich boards walking around Times Square yelling, judgment is going to be upon you, okay? And, I, and, that, and I, that, that in like, ugh, and that's not how you're supposed to share the gospel, that's, that's wrong. And then I see, like, they're all doing that. They're doing exactly that. And John the Baptist is doing that with Herod himself. And he goes and he rebukes him and he says, uh, verse 17, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. All right, so just a little background here. Why is it so bad? Why, what is the call to repentance here? So Herod marries his brother's wife. Now, how did that happen first? Herodias, uh, the wife in question here, uh, she divorced Philip, her, her first husband, which is against Jewish law. Women are not allowed, according to Jewish law, to divorce their husbands. But she went through the back route and used the Roman legal system, which is Herod and, and their clan are kind of notorious for this. They're Hellenized. They they're utilize Rome to their benefit. But there's a second thing that they're doing here. Uh, According to Levitical law, you're not allowed to marry your brother's wife, especially if he's still alive. This is not allowed. This is not okay. Uh, Several places in Scripture make that clear. And so there's two reasons for John the Baptist to go and rebuke Herod, and he does, and he does it seemingly to his face multiple times, and he lands himself in prison. Now, there's persecution in the, in the Christian church. Persecution has been a, a sorry companion of uh, the Christian church from the very beginning. And uh, we ask, okay, why, why is that? There's a lot of reasons, but in part, it's because of repentance. It's because that, that scary word, repent, is very much part of the gospel presentation. It's part of our response to the gospel. It's part of what we give people that they might receive the gospel of salvation. It includes this oftentimes kind of ugly reality of repentance. And we remember that John the Baptist, what did he see? He was baptizing people, a, a baptism of repentance for sin. And then Jesus, after John the Baptist is arrested, what does he do? Verse 14 chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then, just when the disciples were sent out, 6.12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That people should repent. Now, there are a lot of very well-received, beautiful things that we can tell people. Uh, Repentance is not often one of them that is received very well. In fact, it's it's often received with repentance and with backlash. But just so we have kind of good theological categories here, what are we talking about when we talk repentance? And why why do we care about it? Why is it part of the gospel? All right, so where we stand... uh, as sinners unredeemed, we are captivated with sin. And we love it. 
And we are mesmerized with it and we rejoice in it. We think we have found life in sin. And our gaze is transfixed. And what is, what is repentance? Repentance is a call to, to get our eyes off of death and to look, look to Jesus Christ instead. It's this turning. And as we turn, it has this twofold aspect. So as we repent, we believe in Christ. We both reject the sin and see it for death and then receive Christ in life. That's the call of, of repentance and belief together. And they go hand in hand. You cannot uh, repent but not believe in anything else. It's a, it's a switch. It's a trade. It's a turning. Now, why, why is that movement from repentance to faith, why, why is it so crucial that that repentance aspect be there? Uh, it's not because... If you bring too much sin to the table, then you can't, you can't really believe. No, it's the, the whole point is you're bringing a lot of sin to the table. You're bringing all your sin to the table. All right, so this is not this kind of initial cleanup and like you can't be really bad. You need to at least say that your, your sin is bad. No, it's that you, you cannot love and see life and death. You need to have your, your, your eyes drawn to Christ. That is why it's so crucial. It's saying, like, you are in love with death. You need to be in love with Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing to, to call people to repentance in that. All right, illustration of this. All right, it's stupid, but, yeah, alas, here it goes. Uh, all right, so uh, we're hearkening back to Finding Nemo. All right, it's been a while. It's been a while, so get the cobwebs off. Uh, all right, and uh, so Dory and Marlon, they're looking for Nemo. And they find themselves uh, in utter darkness. They're at the, the bottom of the ocean. And what does Dory see? Dory sees a, a little light. And it's a beautiful little light. And she's mesmerized. She's, look at the light. And she, I want to touch it. She tries to touch it. Uh, and they're, they're fascinated by this thing. Like, I feel happy and I feel warm inside. And then, as, as the little light we see, we see looming in the darkness, the fangs of the anglerfish ready to eat them alive, all right? Now, this is a Disney movie. They do not get eaten alive. Surprise, surprise. Uh, all right, but what is this? This is, the, as long as they are transfixed by the light and think that there's light and life in it, they are going to die. What is repentance? Repentance is a slap on the face. It says, you know what? You, you, need to, you need to see that this is death and you need to turn away. That is the call of repentance. All right, it is not a cruel thing. It's a call to, to life. It's not a call of judgment. That is just, just going to destroy you. It's going to eat you alive. Now, why do we, why do we say this? Um, I say this because uh, in the Christian church, as I see it, repentance as a whole has been either over-embraced or under-embraced. All right, we're probably more familiar with the over-embracers, the people with the sign who are yelling. and uh, They make it so much about repentance that it seems like it's not about faith. It's not about belief in the gospel. It's not about what Jesus Christ has done to take away your sins. It makes it sound like, you know, you just have a bunch of sins that you need to deal with and, and make yourself good enough for, for God not to judge you. And it's often done with, this, with pride and self-righteousness Essentially saying, you know what, 
I don't need to repent anymore. You, you do. You need to repent or else you are going to be judged. When in reality, what is it? It's, it's we are constantly repenting. We are constantly turning from sin and we're calling others to join us so that we might look at our faithful and gracious Savior. Not just clean yourself up, but turn, turn to the one who has paid the price. That's what we're talking about. Um, but I think, honestly, the, the pendulum is swung the other way for most of us. And we're saying, you know, we have no call to the world to, to turn from sin. We, we often kind of dance around it and leave people in their sin and hope that they might kind of add Jesus to the mix and things might work out. That isn't how the gospel is presented to, uh, in, the, in the very mouth of Jesus himself, in the, the words of John the, John the Baptist, the disciples preaching, repent is part of it. And it's a message of, of love in as much as it is a call that people reject. And so uh, we have to ask ourselves first, is, is repentance part of your response to the gospel? Is it part of your life in Christ? A turning away, a, a recognition that you are in love with things that need to be cast off for love for Christ. But then the harder one, the harder one is then, is repentance part of the message that you give to the world? Not in a, in a judgmental, not in a self-righteous way, but do you give it? Can you? And are we willing to be persecuted because we really do see sin and we call it out and we call it for what it is? We often say, well, we're just not persecuted here. All right. Maybe we have created a Christian life so that we are not persecuted. That's, that's the, the real danger. And that we've interacted with people on a daily basis to subtly sidestep that kind of stuff. I was actually, uh, had a friend from seminary uh, who was from China. He was part of the underground church in China. And we'd always ask, everyone would ask him, like, so you, what is it like to be persecuted? And like, oh, he had a, he had a gut twister for it. He's like, you guys, are, you guys are persecuted too. You just aren't really that faithful in it. You know, like, you, you, you tend to have pretty easy answers, and you, you sidestep it, and you are persecuted. But you're kind of just culturally letting it happen so that you can avoid it. All right. Thanks, thanks Chinese underground guy. Like, brutal, but <laughs> thanks a lot. But uh, it's true, it's true. And that's where we have to ask, like, okay, John, John the Baptist, he's persecuted because of repentance as part of the message. That's why there's such rejection to the message uh, throughout the New Testament. All right, now, we're going to take a little bit of a shift and, and say, all right, so let's look at uh, the relationship between John the Baptist and Herod here as kind of a, a small illustration, kind of a microcosm of what is the interaction between the state and the church, between believers and the, the kingdoms of the world. Now, John finds himself in prison and persecuted because uh, he has brought the gospel to bear and the message of the gospel to bear against the kingdoms of the world, against King Herod. In verse 19, 
And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. All right, now, in this, in this kind of just tiny little couple sentences, we see kind of like the two main responses of the kingdoms of the world to the gospel and to the people of God. Now, the first one, the first one is just utter disdain, hatred, loathing of the people of God. All right, why? Because they embody this this message of a call to holiness because they are not a respecter of persons, because they are a people unto themselves, because they are a nation that stands independent of the nations of the world. All right, they don't play by the rules. And they ought not to play by the rules. That is the, the kingdom that we've been handed, one that is not of this world. We have to have a different idea of what the mission of life is, what success looks like, what the world is about. And that's right. Throughout the, the centuries, kind of apologists of the early church, they would fight to, to prove that, yes, the church was a bunch of weirdos, but, you know, please don't kill us because we're, we kind of benefit society, that sort of thing. But the reality was, like, they recognized themselves as, like, total outcasts who have no place in the world. And when the nations receive those people, they say, we, we, we have no use for you. You are not helping us agenda, get our goal. You're totally off in left field. You're, you're flying high. You have such different realities going on that begets hatred and persecution. Now, uh, once again, why do I say this? I say this because I want us to have a realistic idea of what the state really is. Throughout history, it has been the key persecutor of the church. That the kingdoms of the world, the nations, the, the rulers, have been the main persecutors of the church. I want us to let that sink in because we live in a kind of bizarre world where that's not the case. And some of us even think that shouldn't be the case or it, that we've kind of created this amazing place where it isn't the case and it ought to be like that everywhere or it really is like that everywhere. Right? That's just not the reality that is presented to us in Scripture. When we see revelation and the, the representation of, of the evil and the oppressor, it's the state. It's the, the kingdoms of the world that are set against the kingdom of God. And we have to ask ourselves, um, why? Why are we not persecuted? Why are we not persecuted? And it could either be that, you know what, the state, our, our nation has embraced Jesus so much that they just love us. <laughs> and they love the gospel, and they love all of the things we stand for, and they just love the kingdom. Uh, all right, I'm guessing that's not the case. All right, what is the more likely case? Uh, instead, we have fallen in love with the agenda of the state. And that when we see the mission of the kingdoms of the world, we can, we can jump right in. 
and we can play, and we can we can put our throw our dice, we can play our hand, and we know exactly what it's like. And that's where the the church is hated because it it can't it was it's not manipulated by by power and money and greed and fear. There are people immune to these things because of the reality of the gospel. But I think, I think as we do fall prey to them, there is no need for persecution. We are not a threat. We are not distinct. And we, we have nothing to, to disdain according to the world. And that's where I... Here's John the Baptist. He's not a respecter of persons. He goes to Herod himself, the one who has all power, and yet he rebukes him all the same, knowing that there is a greater power, there's another one who's in control. Now, I don't say this to aggrandize the persecuted church. I don't delight in the persecuted church. The persecuted church is a reality, that, but it is a, a sorrowful one. Why do we pray for our leaders? The, the context of that, pray for your leaders so that you may have peace and be able to share the gospel and live your life in glory to God. All right, but as I say that, persecution is not the worst thing that can happen to the church. Persecution is not the worst thing that can happen to the church. Throughout the history of the church, persecution has been uh, the lifeblood of the church. It, the church has thrived under persecution. I think of, of times like the, like the Reformation and Bloody Mary. What was Bloody Mary's greatest mistake as a ruler? She started killing Protestants and showing that they were bearing their cross, that they were looking like Jesus. And suddenly the Reformation is... It's like wildfire taking over England because it was clear where they stood. They stood on the side of Christ and the martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs. The line to Stephen all the way to these reformers. Or we have that place like the Chinese church. Thriving. Underground even as it's being tried to be consumed by communist China. The early church. Nero dipping disciples in oil and burning them. Like, horrible things, the Colosseum, but yet the gospel was spreading. It was thriving, even. All right, where throughout history has the church really declined? When has it been, the gospel been the most danger? It's when the state and the church have become one. It's when popes were declaring war. It's when the religious establishment was telling the kings what to do. It's when the king would come in and say, hey, we're Christian now. You know, I don't care what you believe, just pretend. Right? Those kind of contexts that are kind of poisonous to the reality of the gospel. And I say that not so that we pray for persecution, but if it comes, we receive it as from the, our Father's hand. And knowing that we have a Savior who will go with us, a Savior who has walked through temptation and suffering, 
that we have a Savior who can build his church through blood and through death and through suffering because he already has. Persecution might be a reality, and I don't want us to think that because of the way it's been, we should be immune, or that we can start becoming allies of the kingdoms of the world because we don't deserve punishment, we don't deserve persecution. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, thankfully, there's this, this second option of how, how the church and the state tend to interact uh, in the case of John and Jesus and other places with Paul. Uh, bewildered fascination. All right, so they don't understand, but they, they kind of like it anyway. And that's where there's this remarkable reality of, of Herod. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. All right, what, what it, like an oddly beautiful picture of someone who's really bringing the kingdom of God and the reality of the gospel to bear to this ruler. That when he brings it, he brings uh, holiness and righteousness that Herod cannot but respect. And what protects John is not his alliances, it's not that he has all these people on his side, it's that he's a righteous and holy man. And even Herod, who is not a righteous and holy man, he gets that. And he can somehow see what's going on there. I think of Daniel, as they're trying, the, the men are trying to accuse him, and nothing sticks. The one thing they can get on him is that he prays too much. And so they make a law that, well, we'll make, we'll make that bad. Uh, right, that's, like, that's righteousness and holiness that just is, is beautiful and speaks volumes to the world. Um, and some, are, some hate it and some are fascinated by it. All right, and then there's the message itself. Uh, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. All right, the relationship between church and state, joyful confusion. All right, that's, that's, a, that's a weird thing, and that's like a, a beautiful gospel, Jesus-y kind of thing. That confusion is actually a, a beautiful thing that we bring into the world because they shouldn't be able to figure us out unless they understand the gospel. All right, if, if we are evangelical Christians who line up perfectly with political structures, there's something, it's, we shouldn't be expected. We shouldn't be obvious. We shouldn't be, because we, we are not, we're not part of these kingdoms. We are part of the kingdom of God. And our votes should be confusing. Our policies should be confusing. Our convictions should be confusing. Because they are not the same policies of the world. We have to ask ourselves, is, is that confusion there? But also, is there this, as much as they don't understand it, we can, there's joy in receiving it that we have great hope and we have great peace. And that when we gain power, we don't use it for ourselves, we use it to proclaim the gospel and to love people that we are really not about the kingdoms here 
that we are even willing to die and to suffer because of something much greater. That, I hope, is the relationship that we can have with the state. That's what we want to bring. So they have to say, you're, you're categorically different. Like, what kingdom are you a part of? Are you on my team? Are you on their team? No. We're part of the kingdom of God. We are following Jesus. We love him. And that's what Jesus brings to the table when he talks to Pilate. Pilate is, is shocked because Jesus has clearly has like power and wisdom and authority, but he's not using any of it. He's not trying to get his way off. He's not trying to make an alliance with Pilate. He's not trying to accuse other people. He's submissive to his father's will. He recognizes that he is under his father's hand, not ultimately Pilate, and speaks of a greater kingdom, and Pilate's left in awe. All right, that's the great beauty of how we can interact with the world through the lens of the gospel. Right. But, uh, sadly, that as much as Herod, Pontius Pilate are delighted and shocked and confused, ultimately, in this story and in the, the gospel story, evil does win for a time. And we wonder, why does evil win? Why, does, why has God allowed this to happen? And it's a horrible story. It's a horrible story that Herod has a, a drunken feast with the mucky mucks of Galilee and in utter foolishness promises to his daughter of all people who's dancing for them. Uh, and what happens? She calls for the, the martyrdom of the, the last great prophet of the Old Testament. All right, it's awful. It's despicable. And here is evil triumphing and, and dancing and rejoicing that they, they defeated God. Uh, all right, what do we do with that? What do we do with this? Um, we recognize that this is the life and death that was ordained by God for John the Baptist. And that life and death are ordained and that received them from his hand. And what did he use this one for? In the context of Mark, he used it to show that, yes, the message of Jesus is the same as John. The message of the, John, of the disciples is the same as John. And the fate of both is the same as John. That this is the call. This is the path. This is the... This is how God's people will glorify his name. And when John the Baptist is buried that day, we recognize, okay, Jesus is going to be buried in the grave. Jesus is going to be betrayed. Jesus is going to die for a king to save face. A king who doesn't really care, who is part of the kingdoms of the world, and so he kills God. All right, but the, the blessing of this is all that all right, Jesus Christ doesn't remain in the grave. Jesus Christ does not remain in the grave. Jesus Christ reigns as king. He resurrects. He now stands as a king of the kingdom of heaven, reigning forevermore. And he has, because he rejected power and greed and wealth and authority,
authority and glory, he now stands as the king of heaven. And he now takes his people who have turned from sin and who have looked to him and he receives them and says, Your eternal life, eternal peace, eternal joy. Right? This is the kingdom that I give to you. And then he says, you know what? As part of that, to live as Christ and to die as gain. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Our suffering and persecution and even martyrdom is a way of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it's that, that's the reason, and that is how these disciples were persecuted with great joy and with great purpose because they knew they were proclaiming a new kingdom and a better kingdom where Jesus Christ reigns. I'll remind you of the nature of that kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, that is what is offered to us in persecution and in suffering to put that kingdom on display, to show that our king is alive and that he is resurrected and that we have faith in his resurrection power and we long to live with him and we are part of his kingdom, not the kingdoms of the world. In, in college, my, my, all the like super intense buddies of mine, uh, we, all, we all love the passage where uh, the martyrs are crying out to God from this kind of bowl right next to the throne. And we say, like, where would you rather be than there? In the bowl next to God, crying out, like, hey, God, hurry. Like, avenge us. Our blood is crying out. Like, that's what we thought was, like, that was the coolest thing ever. All right. That's still the coolest thing ever. It is. It's the coolest thing ever. Like that is a, Those are people who, they followed the footsteps of Jesus and they put their faith in resurrection power of Jesus Christ and they are now sitting, you know, waiting at the throne for Jesus Christ to come into his glory that they may reign and rejoice and be with him in paradise forever. All right. Now, final, final thing. If that is our kingdom, stop looking for other kingdoms. The search is over. All right? That's the kingdom we live in. That's the kingdom we're a part of. The kingdoms out there have nothing to offer us. We already have life in Jesus Christ. Eternal life, given graciously. We don't need to go out there and fight for life. Fight for our lives, fight for our glory, for our wealth, for our comforts. They are promised and given to us in Christ. Finally, we have a king already. Stop trying to find a king. Stop looking for a king. Stop giving your allegiances to other kings. Jesus Christ is our king forevermore.
and he will reign forevermore, and we will be with him forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you've called us to repentance, and by the power of your Spirit, we repented not because of our great righteousness, but because uh, you opened our eyes and our hearts. And Father, we ask that we would not lord anything against the world. We would not judge it. We would not condemn it. But we would say that like we stood condemned but found a Savior that we would offer a Savior to a people who also stand condemned. But Father, with no pride and with no judgment. So Father, would you, would you forgive us for our, our pride and judgment? Would you forgive us for looking at the world with disdain And Father, would you forgive us for loving the world and for submitting to the world, for using the world that we might gain through unrighteousness or through through greed or power, a kingdom that is not even our own. Father, when we see that even our deaths uh, glorify your name. We are humbled to realize that, Father, you could call so much of us, and yet uh, our hearts are so stubborn and, and cold, and we ask that you would soften them by your Spirit, that we would long to see Jesus glorified, that we long to see his kingdom built, and that we long most of all to see him face to face. So, Father, would you change our hearts, and would you make the church into what you you long for it to be. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.